On this episode of China Unscripted, the battle between socialism and freedom, how socialism is built to fail, and the return of the Sage Kings. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And joining us today is Joshua Phillip, host of the YouTube show Crossroads. You may have seen him on our show several times before. This has been a long demanded uh, end to the trilogy. Yeah, we've been talk, talking about coming back for like months now. Like, well, it's been, yeah. that was before we did video. So. It was before <laughs> the coronavirus. Was it? It was, it was January, 2020. Okay. Wow. And we wow. might've even filmed it in 2019. It was it in was, Matt's living room. It was my room. living room. Yeah. Yeah. So we, th- this yeah. is why time feels like it hasn't moved. In other words, <laughs> yes, yeah, nothing, okay, yeah, yeah. nothing is has happened. Has something happened this year? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's like the Langoliers. We've all just been stuck waiting for these giant mouths with teeth to devour us all. And that sets the tone for our discussion <laughs> with Josh. Uh, so on the last time we had you on, uh, we kind of ended off uh, with the idea that the next podcast, which is this one, we would discuss this uh, sort of global battle between, as you said, socialism versus freedom. So that that sounds like a nice, easy topic. <laughs> you know, I'd like to keep it light. You know? yeah, 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 definitely. Well, so I think a big part of that is people have different opinions or ideas on what socialism is. So like we need to talk about like what is socialism, what is freedom? So let, let's talk about this bre- from a few different angles. So first off, even in the time of Marx, there were many different interpretations of it, each of which didn't regard the other as being legitimate. So nice. this, this debate with the socialists and communists has been going on like from before Marx. Marx didn't start all that this. That just seems to be something that people do. <laughs> now you don't have the right stuff. Yeah. So l- let me talk briefly about what Marx did with it. Okay. And then we can go deeper into the whole idea of how we, de- how we define them. So, you know, there's an interesting book, Socialism by Ludwig von Mises. He's Austrian economics guy. He has a really good book called Socialism. Uh, it goes into this history. And he explains something interesting, which is at the time of Marx, pretty much socialism as an ideology was kind of in its death throes. And really until the Bolshevik Revolution, socialism and communism were used mostly interchangeably. It just referred to different stages of the same idea. Um, But if we go into what happened during the time of Marx, basically socialism could not withstand debate when it came to uh, sociology and when it came to economics. And so what Marx did was said, all, all those economics and sociologists, they're the bourgeois, you know, educated elites, and you don't need to talk to them. And so the debate on all this just ended through Marx. And then he said, you can't imagine what communism will be. So there's no use debating what communism will be. First, we need to destroy the systems, and then communism will emerge from the ashes. And so he's like, you know, you can't debate about what it's going to be. So you had all kinds of ideas of socialism come about ideas to achieve communism. You had Christian socialism, you had military socialism, you had the Owenites pre-existing before Marx, you had the normal Marxists, you had the uh, techno- technocrats came about later, one, you know, big business socialism, kind of the cyberpunk future vision. You had all kinds of ideas of socialism come about, each of which didn't regard the other ones as legitimate roads to communism. Basically. <laughs> so were all these different types of socialism, was the end goal communism for all of them? I, I, I'd say all the original ones, because communism was the idea that they hoped to achieve through socialism. Socialism was always the the dictatorship of some kind, the control of an institution of some kind, and the use of the control that of that institution to destroy 
the existing in- institutions, whether it be morality, whether it be religion, whether it be economic structures, whether it be social conditions or social classes. It was, it was an idea to tear down what constituted the old world and the belief that just by tearing it down, something new would emerge. And this gets into what communism actually is. Uh, it's rooted heavily in Hegelian dialectics. So Hegel at the time of Marx was like one of the biggest, most respected, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if I'd call him a philosopher. He was technically like a cultist, <laughs> but, but okay. Hegelian dialectics was the main um, metaphysical theory in a lot of Europe at the time of Marx. This was like a huge, huge belief system. And at that time, everybody was kind of challenging, even going back to the French Revolution, going back and challenging, um, you know, can we create this new enlightened world? Can we move on from the, the ways of the old world? Can we move on from kings and uh, the Catholic Church and all these systems of conditions? It's like Mao and the four olds cultural revolution. Yeah, they, 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 were, they were wondering if you could eliminate what the world was and build something new. And, and that was the idea. So the main idea of communism comes from a couple things, from the Hegelian dialectic. Uh, one of which was the idea of, idea of the negation of the negation. I think we talked about this in the last episode just a little bit, but just to explain it. The idea was that basically Hegel talked about the negation of the negation. He talked about, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. He had just random language, but just throwing that out there. What it means is that Hegel believed that by that through the destruction of an existing condition, a higher evolved condition would emerge. So, for example, a chicken, through the destruction of the egg, the chicken is born. Through the destruction of a seed, a plant is born. And so, Marx took that and said, well, we just destroy everything. You know, maybe some new enlightened society will be born from it, a a more evolved society. And so, he put out a system to destroy all pre... He he said, destroy everything without constituting anything new, essentially. What happens when you destroy a chicken? Yeah. You get dinner. They, they didn't go that far, yeah. Well, no, the bigger problem with the argument is that there are lots of ways to destroy seeds and eggs that don't result in new life or growth, and only like very specific ways in which new life emerges from those things. All other roads them. lead to Mad Max. Exactly. <laughs> well, th- that was the big irony of when Lenin came about, because Marx believed that it would be a natural progress, because obviously if you have an egg and you destroy the egg before it's ready, you're just going to kill it. Mm-hmm. You're going to get an egg, not a chicken, right? Yeah. Well, and so says, you know, you person from the bourgeoisie. Yeah, you know? you're part of the system. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> and so that was the irony of Lenin. A lot of a lot of Marxists didn't regard Lenin as a real communist. Wow. Because he had to use violent revolution to achieve it. He had to force it. Mm. And not only did he have to force it, but he did it not in a, you know, a highly evolved capitalist society, quote unquote, which would have been at the time either uh, uh, the UK or Germany. Uh, he did it in like an agrarian, you know, czarist society. <laughs> Which is actually what the Soviet Union criticized about Mao's revolution, is that they, they were too agrarian of a society. It wasn't real. Well, and well, the funny thing is, if, if you go into Mao's actual statements too, Mao actually understood that. Mm-hmm. And so he talked about the need for, need to move to capitalism first because they were an agrarian society, then into more socialism and then into communism. Although, it was mixed, of course, you know, it was state capitalism, as they would call it, meaning the state controls the systems of capitalism. It was the same thing Lenin did, in fact. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Lenin took power after the Bolshevik Revolution, he wrote a paper, which I found, he read it, it's very interesting. He talks, he, ta- he calls it uh, communism, state they create, the state capitalist monopoly. And he's saying, the article is entitled something like, can we advance to communism if we fear the stage of socialism? 
And he was saying that in order to achieve communism, we first need to go through socialism. And this is the state capitalist monopoly where the state seizes the means of production and owns all the systems of capitalism. And this That's gets, authoritarianism. Yeah, and, and socialism always was authoritarianism. Socialism was always the state of tyranny, where the government controls all the means of production. And keep in mind, it wasn't just labor, it wasn't just factories. And, you know, a lot of socialists believe, a lot of socialists observe the problems of modern society and they say, oh, why do we have to work nine to five at some stupid job that produces nothing of logical value? You know, why does the world have to be this way? Socialism doesn't get rid of that. Socialism just takes those things and puts them under government ownership, you know, mm -hmm. which, is, which is the irony of it, which, mm -hmm. is why tech, which is why typically the people who agitate for these kinds of governments are the first ones to be thrown in the gulags by them because they're the first ones to realize, hey, this wasn't what I wanted. So in terms of like socialism and Leninism and that type of like authoritarian violent revolution takeover. I think a lot of people who advocate for socialism now say, well, Leninism or like that type of violent revolution, that's not necessary, right? Like that's not the right type of socialism. Like the right type of socialism is like democratic socialism. Like well, in Europe. Yeah. yeah so dem democratic socialism just means that you have an election system to bring into, bring into power the socialist policies. That's all it means. It's, it's just democratic process of achieving right, social doesn't it mean that in theory then people can vote for the representatives they want and that the representatives don't give them the kind of policies they want they can just vote them out and replace them with someone new i'd say in early stages yes in later stages no because in later stages they're going to use policy to make sure you can't do that you know and so socialism always evolves along a train, right? There's there's your light socialism, right? What America had for a long time, I, I would say, where you, you did have technically democratic socialism. Technically, we have democratically elected socialist representatives in the U.S. We had, we've had for a long time. Technically, we've had democratically elected people who put, who put into place democratic, democratically created socialist policies like the New Deal. Technically, America for a long time has been a democratic socialist country. Um, but now once they get more of their people into power, they will start changing the election systems. They'll start making sure that you can't vote them out. They'll start making ideologies that oppose their beliefs illegal. Or they're going to start making it so that the ideas that oppose them, because one of the ways that communism works is through struggle of opposites, through the creation of uh, social struggle, turning people against each other, and so on. Ensuring that anybody who opposes their ideas right? There's no middle ground. Anybody who opposes their ideas is like labeled as the worst person in society and attacking them relentlessly. And th this goes back into the, the whole basis of, I think, the ideology of what uh, communism is. Well, that implies some kind of connection between uh, the state, the government, and the media institutions. <laughs> yeah, which, which we don't have. That doesn't exist at all, as we all know. Yeah. I, I totally detect a hint of sarcasm <laughs> there, well, actually. I mean, in terms of America... It, I think that's a kind of a, a provocative statement to say that America's been a democratic socialist country for a long time. I think a lot of people would say that that's not true. Technically, in terms of policy, America is more socialist than a lot of the Nordic. Really? Okay, you're going to have to explain. Yeah. Well, you think about our well. We have welfare systems. Think about how developed our welfare systems are. Even even being poor in America is not poor in most countries. I think I think the CCP's uplifting people from poverty standard was what, like three dollars and fifty cents a day income, something, something like that. I think that was 
lower than that, but yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the people from actual really poor countries look to the poor people in America, unless you're like homeless. And a lot of those people are more like drug related, right? Um, they look to the people in America and they, they see they have TVs, they have cars oftentimes, they have apartments, they have their basic needs typically. Well, so about that, uh, what about like issues like universal health care or universal basic income, housing rights? Uh, those are those are a lot of the issues that people look to as oh, these these are example of democratic socialism that people need. Well, it, so this goes into the different views on what socialism is, and I would say early stage socialism typically has those things. Late late stage socialism typically does not have those things mm -hmm. because early stage socialism typically does work. Because you have people to rob, basically. Hmm. Once you're out of people to steal things from, right? It, it, it's a flat. It's it's a tearing down of society. It's not a building up of society. It is the identifying people who have you know unequal wealth. It, it it looks at people who have more wealth than other people in society. It takes from them what they have and distributes it to the people who don't have wealth. Now that that's based on the idea that the people who don't have wealth, once you give them wealth, can create new wealth. But by eliminating the ability of people to do that in the first place, because you're under a socialist system, right? The government controls it, not the people. Uh, their ability of to, their ability to create new wealth is determined by government policy, and really, we see over and over again that government, having all those powers, can't can't micromanage to the degree necessary to notice all the minor variations and needs of the market and of individual uses and of environmental policies and you know unique county by county needs and so on. It, it, it has never worked and uh, there's no sign that it ever will work, actually. Who would you say, are there countries that are right now in early stage socialism versus late stage socialism? Like to give people a better idea of what you're talking about. I would, I would say that late stage socialism would be more like North Korea or it would be more like Chinese. Chinese Communist Party's kind of moved away from communism a little bit. They're more like actual fascists now, <laughs> even though they're led still by a fully communist worldview, right? If you're a Communist Party member, you still have to study all these doctrines. But you could also say that the gathering of power just in the hands of the elite and caring very little for anybody else is is part of that. Now, they, they moved back to, you know, they can move the bar depending on the needs at the time. If they feel the system's about to collapse, they can bring in more capitalist policies. Lenin did it, for example. Mao Zedong, well, not technically Mao Zedong, technically Deng Xiaoping did it when he brought, did the reform and opening up. The CCP is reversing that now under Xi Jinping uh, because they don't think they need it now. You see the bar move back and forth as they need it, right? Giving people the ability to engage in, say, the ability to create your own wealth versus the government controlling all systems of wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're definitely moving back towards state control. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the it was just kind of an illusion that there was anything but state control well, for it was, a long time. I mean, I think in the early 90s, 90s there yeah, was a little there, more. It was kind of... It wasn't the that there was no state control, but like there was just so much happening everywhere that like mm -hmm. the system of control was a lot looser. Hmm. Yeah. So I want to get back to something you you brought up. You know that in many ways the U.S. is more socialist than Nordic countries. Let's let's talk about Norway for example. And we were in Norway in, in the before times <laughs> uh, a couple times, and you know they've got high taxes. They're VAT tax, which is like a European sales tax, is I think 25%. It's extremely high. And they have universal health care. They have very few uh, poor people. They have very few homeless on the street. You know, you don't see a whole lot of that. Isn't that more socialist? Isn't that more advanced 
in socialism than the United States? Well, I'd say they have some socialist policies that are more advanced, like free healthcare and high taxation to maintain social welfare systems. But it's easier to start businesses there, much easier. In other words, in, in, uh, there's no there's no uh, minimum wage there, for example. You have you have different policies like this that make it easier to engage in the capitalist system there. And it's these things that create the wealth and allows them to ironically tax people more. <laughs> the red tape on starting businesses, running businesses, and engaging in the capitalist system there are actually lighter than in the U.S. Well, so you say that socialism is a path to communism, that it gets there by destroying society. But a lot of people see social welfare as a way to actually help people. Well, you know, it's, it's, ar it's arguable how much it does help people, I'd say. If, if you look at the, you know, the New Deal in America, a lot of people say it actually just institutionalized poverty. Hmm. Because there's a difference between lifting people out of poverty and just maintaining poverty. Uh, a, lot of these, a lot of these policies just maintain po poverty. They don't give people a way out. And, you know, and this has always been a problem you have with the, I mean, going back to the days of Marx, the arguments against socialism which is that it institutionalizes failure. It's, 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 you can try to, this has always been the question, how do you eliminate failure in society? How do you eliminate poverty in society, which is a type of failure, right? How do you eliminate you know, conditions that harm people, essentially, that these negative conditions? How can you possibly do it? They say, oh, well, can't we just subsidize it? Can't we just give government money to it? Yes, you can. But by doing that, what you do is you institutionalize failing ways of life. You institutionalize failed failed policies. Well, isn't the idea that the reason people are poor is because of systemic failures in society, that people are not in poverty because of their own failures, but because uh, a system is preventing them from getting I'd, I'd say sometimes. You know, definitely in society that has existed, I'd say it still exists to a large extent, right? Uh, especially when you're dealing with big, you know, big, massive corporate tyrants like we have now. You know, um, which actually, if you go back to like the early 1900s, it was the conservatives who were more concerned about that than the the left. Uh, they were they were the ones actually more concerned about you know the big corporations having monopolies and so on. I mean that that's a whole other ball game. I'd get into that. But get, getting to the question of poverty, though, this this was one of the big arguments. Now, normally, failure happens, but failure also has its uses. If you have a free society, a society without different types of tyranny that prevent you from, for example, building, building your own life, building your own wealth, building your own businesses, right? Your ability to navigate the system, and yes, your ability to fail while navigating that system, that is part of the freedom we are allotted in life, if you're living in, in a free society. Uh, the problem we have with that, though, is that yes, you do fail sometimes, but you'll find that sometimes the wealthiest people in society have failed many, many, many times before reaching success. Because failure has its uses. Failure shows you what does not work. Now, the problem we have with socialist policies where they try to prevent failure is that they give money to companies to basically prop them up. The CCP does this, for example. Companies that should fail are propped up through government finance. And what this means is that you have a failing condition, a failing state that is basically propped up by state subsidies. And this is one of the big problems you have with socialism. It's one of the reasons why socialism does not work is because you're subsidizing failed, failed ways of life, failed uh, business practices, failed products, and so on. You, so you see this in every socialist country, even including uh, Soviet Union, the types of policies they had. Well, sometimes a company is too big to fail. 
<laughs> uh, that's a different. <laughs> yeah. What? No. Well, you know, th 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 this is one thing a lot of people don't know about the U.S. is actually the corporate reforms in the U.S. and the different types of government policies that have, you know, really merged the ironically socialist type government structures with the corporate structures. Technically, that's fascism. <laughs> ironically, right? It plays into it. It's part of it. The merging of the government and the corporate systems in itself is a type of socialism. This this was what the this is what ironically the fascists and the, and the Nazis were you know, going what's, for. What's what's an example of that that we're seeing in the U.S. today? Like Section two hundred and thirty protections for social media. You know, you can't sue big tech. You can't you can't sue media, for example, for well, you can in some ways, but there's a lot you can't sue them for because of Section two hundred and thirty protections based on the type of uh, content they have. They're using that as a vehicle to restrict free speech. They're using that as a vehicle to destroy public discourse. And people are saying, well, well, they're private companies that could do whatever they want. Yes, that's true. But the problem is the vehicle they're using for it is a government policy that gives them extra rights. In other words, government intervention has created the condition for them to enforce a policy that eliminates uh, basic freedom. Well, so this is something I've been hearing a lot in more conservative uh, media in the, in the country, the idea that the U.S. is gradually becoming more communist. What do you think about those claims? Because that seems, I think to many people watching, that seems like a stretch. We're not the Soviet Union. Well, you know, you could say America's moving towards communism. I, I would say it's true to an extent. Mm. We're, we're, we're more moving towards deeper socialism, but the result would be communism. And I think this plays into the definitions of socialism, communism. Communism is the annihilation of institutions. Communism exists even through the even through the collapse of the socialist system, which a lot of communists criticize ironically because they're saying, you know, um, they say that they don't like the socialist systems, the state of tyranny, the big businesses, the big government, the big government policies. A lot of them don't like it. Actually, if you go back to like Edward Bernays, for example, and like radical anarchy, that was the idea of anarchy was you could achieve communism the state of moral annihilation, belief, you know, recognition of uh, its social norms, the, the annihilation of all previously existing institutions. They believed you could achieve that internally. You don't need to do it externally. And so they believed that by having that, the internal annihilation of culture, belief, family, beliefs, morals, so on, that you could achieve communism without the need of a socialist tyranny. But getting into where America's at right now, you know, government is actually becoming a lot stronger. We're technically moving in deeper into big government socialism and restrictions that come with it, including restrictions on free speech, uh, you know, no, no more gun rights, no more freedom of assembly in a lot of ways. The, the basic freedoms that we've enjoyed for a long time are being not only chipped away at, but I think deeply hit right now in ways that a lot of people never saw possible. And yes, you could say that we're moving towards communism through these policies, but communism would come about through the collapse of previously existing institutions. You know, the destruction of the family institution, the destruction of morals, the destruction of uh, all previously existing institutions, including finally the collapse of even the government systems and so on. So a lot of people are very uh, critical of these giant corporate structures that exist in this country. And they say that is a sign of capitalism's failure. But you're saying that's actually a result of these gigantic mega corporations having government backing? This, this goes back to the arguments you'd find even in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. This argument has been going on for a long time. And the concern has always been this. 
a lot of people criticize what they believe is capitalism. They blame a lot of things on capitalism without realizing that even by the late 1800s, already socialist policies had been introduced into the capitalist system. A lot of what people are criticizing within capitalism are actually interventionist policies rooted in socialism. Well, what about in the 1800s, the, um, might have been early 1900s, the Department of Justice's breakup of Standard Oil through antitrust legislation? Yeah, so that that was so that this is kind of the irony of that is a lot of there there were different beliefs on that if you go back and read the arguments on it it was actually more the conservatives who were concerned about monopoly, but by the issue you had with government intervention within that is how do you do it in a way that doesn't allow companies to basically use it to their advantage, which when you get into the corporate reforms and different policies to restrict businesses a lot of it is in in wording in text targeted at the big corporations like higher corporate taxes and so on. But it ends up targeting not so much the big guys, but instead the middle of the road guys and the lower end guys. In other words, it eliminates normal competition within the business institutions. That's one of the big concerns you have in the US, which is ironically one of the reasons a lot of people attribute to the fact that why do all the big corporations support these policies? It's because it helps them eliminate their competition. It ensures their absolute control over the industries they're in. Right. Actually, a good example of that would be after the 2008 financial collapse, the big banks were bailed out, and the sort of condition was that there was going to be more regulation. And the ones who wrote the legislation were the lobbyists for the corporations, for the biggest banks. And the legislation basically had so much regulation that it would require these big banks to spend $50, $100 million a year on compliance. So, okay, in theory, it's like, oh, more compliance means we're going to act more ethically because we have to. But the reality is that now small and medium-sized banks could not compete because a, a, you know, a smaller mid-sized bank can't possibly afford $100 million a year on compliance, right? So now you've institutionalized the too-big-to-fail banks through regulations that they themselves wrote to ultimately keep out competition. Yeah, it's, it's one of the... One of the dirtier sides of politics, unfortunately. Then, then you get into like legislation and you'll have like this legislation applies to everybody except for companies that filed on, you know, this date specifically. And, you know, it's the company that like is, you know, lobbying the politician who wrote the All right, Or like, like take Uber <laughs> and Lyft, you know, California basically eliminated most freelance work because workers are being treated unfairly, supposedly. Right. But then Uber and Lyft basically got a workaround and actually... That's the opposite of what people, I think, in California really wanted to happen. Or like if you look at, I've seen these ads the last couple of weeks, these ads by Facebook about how there haven't been new rules for the internet since the 90s. It's time to update the rules. And oh boy. I look at that and I'm like, I understand that, sure, we should always have updated regulation. But if Facebook is pushing for this, there's something creepy going on. Yeah, that they've said in multiple hearings that they support Section 230 reform. They want to work with the government on it, you know? As long as they get to write the legislation, I'm sure it'll be fine. This is actually one of the more concerning parts of Section 230. And it was, even when Trump was trying to repeal it, this 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 was a lot of the arguments even against what Trump was trying to do, which is basically, you know, Section 230, right, of the Communications Decency Act. What it does basically is, it's based on the idea that Companies have no way possible to monitor and manage and remove comments and posts because they're they're platforms, right? 
their platforms and people can use them and post whatever they want. And they, they have no way of possibly moderating all that. It's not possible. That's the idea that they're a platform. Once they start getting engaged in restricting certain types of opinions, restricting certain types of content, eliminating certain viewpoints, moderating to the point of you know checking every single comment, they're no longer a platform, they're a publisher. And the entire idea of you know, the protections they would have under this are based on the idea that they couldn't do that type of monitoring and censoring and editing and so on. Now, well, they couldn't at the time, but now they have artificial intelligence that's doing it. Exactly. Built with China's help. <laughs> exactly. And so now they're actually switching the argument. And this has been one of the subtle shifts in narrative. If you read what's happening now with government, and they're calling big government now in the US, most of the Democrats are calling for uh, censorship of these of these websites are calling on Facebook and Twitter and these different sites to censor opinion more because they say it's promoting extremism or allowing viewpoints in their platforms. Even internationally, there's lawsuits. I think France just filed one. One of the European EU countries. I'm pretty sure it's France just filed one. Free speech can be very dangerous for those in power. Yeah. But here's what you have. They're arguing now that the companies need to engage in that type of censorship. The problem we have is that if you do that, the, the basis of these companies having this type of legal protection in the first place was that it's not possible to do that. Now that they're big enough, big enough where it's possible, now they can do it. And now they're saying that we, that we should make this the law, that this type of censorship needs to be the way things are done and nothing else should be tolerated. What does that mean? It means absolute dominance of that space. It means nobody could ever possibly compete with them. Hmm. Well, that was some of the arguments I saw against repealing Section 230 was that Facebook or Twitter or Google could withstand lawsuits or whatever, but smaller like DuckDuckGo or whatever couldn't do it. And that, and that was a lot of the arguments for it. A lot of people were saying, keep Section 230 into place, but just repeal the, the protections for people who violate it haphazardly, like Facebook, Twitter, mm -hmm. so on, have been doing. Well, so another aspect of socialism and communism, as we've talked about before, is um, struggle. That uh, society is divided between different groups and they have to constantly fight and this is how you destroy a society. Is, is something like that happening in the United States? Because we've only been talking about sort of the uh, corporate it is. And I'd say this gets into a side of communism that most socialists would not actually agree with. A lot of, but a lot of them, I think, get pulled along by it, whether they know it or not. Um, the real communists, the people who really know what they're doing would be promoting this. The ones who really, really know their stuff would be promoting it. Uh, this goes into the, uh, the whole idea of dialectical materialism, right? And the Hegelian idea of uh, conflict leads forward. This gets into the basic idea of what progressivism means in its real sense. Basically, Marx believed that, you know, this this wasn't just Marx. Thomas Cole believed in this, similar things. Remember the, the paintings, for example, of the Course of Civilizations, where you have the pastoral society, right, the pre-civilization, you have the agrarian society, you have the consummate empire, you have the destruction, and you have the desolation. The course of an empire, of becoming, you know, basically being what Marx would describe as pre-communism, the caveman society, uh, the agrarian society of farmers and so on, the capitalist society where you've reached the consummate empire, people are engaging in trade and so on, right? The destruction, the tyranny, the downfall, socialism. 
right? The, the tyranny of society. And then finally, the desolation, the destruction of the existing institutions where it has been destroyed. That is the progressive idea. The pushing- Isn't that an old concept that like is in Buddhism, this sort of karmic cycle? So civilizations rise, they have golden age, and then they fall? It, it is, actually. And, and I'd, I'd say it's actually a, legi- a legitimate view on society. The difference with communism is that they painted the idea of desolation as, an, as a glorious thing. And there are different arguments on whether they believed that was real utopia or whether they were doing it out of actual malice towards humanity. This is, this is one, if you get into the real older writings of Marx and the different people around him, this is one of the big things people still debate about is whether they actually intended to destroy society or whether they actually believed that through the destruction of these institutions in society that something good would be born from it. I would argue that Marx just actually had it out for society, and he just painted this whole illusion to lure people along to destroy everything everything that they had. And if you read Marx's early writings, he had this kind of dark humor and dark outlook where you could really assume that that was, you could really come to the conclusion very easily that's what actually he wanted. And his hatred and malice towards the average person and the way they lived, you can see it in his writing, and you could see very clearly that that would be something that he would very likely support. But but getting into the whole idea of struggle, uh, this goes into the Hegelian dialectical principle, right? Conflict leads forward, right? That social Darwinism, struggle of the fittest. Which, which, what is it that survives the state of conflict? Typically, the more powerful, the stronger, the faster, so on, right? The smarter. They believe that by creating conflict, the communist man would be the one that would emerge from the ashes of the conflict, from the destruction, right? If you get into like early socialist writings, they even had, you know, there's homo erectus and homo, you know, all this stuff, homo sapien. They actually had this like, I can't remember the name for it, like homo communistus or something like that. Oh, wow. You know, the, the, the evolved communist man that would emerge from the ashes of, of, of this type of conflict. This reminds but, but me what, of a... What is this communist man though? Well, this goes back into the idea of what we were talking about before, which is, you know, Marx talked about the ruthless criticism of all things. He believed that everything should be criticized, and he didn't believe in constituting something new. Marxism and communism was the idea about tearing down, not building back up. They believed that by creating a man who had been removed from all previously existing institutions, namely things created by God, right? And this gets into Marx's hatred of God, hatred of religions mostly. They believe that the old world, right? This gets into the whole Gnostic roots of these ideas and so on, right? Which we did talk about in the first. Yeah, so I won't go over too much of that. Um, They they believed that basically morals, ethics, society itself, everything was constructed by a man, by men, mankind that had a moral foundation through religion, through belief. And that they, to perfect society, you needed to create a society built not by belief in old ways and old morals, but by man himself. That society itself should be remade in the image of man rather than in the image of God. And so, in order to achieve that, you first need to destroy everything that constituted a society built on belief and faith and religion, which includes everything, morals, ethics, family, structure. family structures, even construction, even ways of life that you need to first eliminate all these things from within mankind, and then only from there can man rebuild society in the image of man. That was the the more occult side of this. Okay, so the, the most highly evolved, you know, homo communista man is actually 
a primitive man. Basically, which is the irony of it. It yeah. reminds me of a Strauss tone poem, also Sprocked Zoroastro or something like that. Well, that's, well, that's Nietzsche, right? Uh, it was based off of a Nietzsche yeah. writing. Well, yeah. you know, the funny thing is Nietzsche actually understood all this stuff. If, if, you yeah. read, if you read Nietzsche's writings on this stuff, he actually understood. Actually, Nietzsche was really anti-socialist, like, like, like really anti-socialist. Okay. And it, if, if you read, you know, his whole quote on God's, you know, God is dead. If you read the whole quote, it was actually criticism based around what we just discussed, which is, yes, you can destroy these things, but what are you going to be left with? You're going to be left with a humankind that doesn't have morals. And that is a terrifying principle. You're left with people who, all of the ideas we have that maintain even the basic ideas of social cohesion and social stability are based on morals. If you eliminate that, you need to constitute something new, uh, because what what does that leave for humankind? He he was talking about this this horrible age of uh, atheist nihilism and what it would create. That was the idea. That if you read his whole quote, that's what he was talking about. That's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Well, so then, how is this affecting American society today? Well, in American society today, you have a very clear force that is, in fact, trying to I think tear down the old world. You know, in in com in, in for example, in China, it was, it was very clear. You know, Mao talked about destroying the four olds, right? Old beliefs, old institutions, old, mm -hmm. you know, old moralities. Similar you know, things in the Soviet Union. Same thing in the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, even to the idea that even sexual liberation was mandated in both the Soviet Union and the Chinese Communist Party, even who you chose as your life partner was, was determined by the state during the early stages, which was so destructive to society that they got rid of that policy real quick. But, you know, in the U.S. now, they're even trying to manage through government policy sexual preference. You know, you're not allowed to have certain sexual preferences now, or you're called like an extremist <laughs> to this point. You're not allowed to say that you believe something is good and something is bad, right? You're not allowed to do it anymore. Um, you can talk about the promotion of, let's say, uh, things that go against traditional values, whether it be entertainment to some extent whether it be government policies saying, you know, the, the, the problem we have is this. If you believe in morals, you believe something is good. And if you believe something is good, you probably believe something is bad. Morals automatically oppose certain behaviors, certain ways of life, certain acts. And I'm not just talking about sexual things, I'm talking about just in general. And if you believe there's a right, you believe there's a wrong. If you believe there's good, you believe there's evil, right? Good and evil in the modern interpretation is not the belief in good and evil itself. Good and evil is interpreted not more on whether, uh, let's say, if you, if you believe in good, you're called evil, because if you believe in good, you believe that something is evil. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. let, me, let me explain it a bit differently. The modern morality is an anti-morality, right? And what is considered immoral is to say that what they're doing is immoral. Morality, actually, these days is an abandonment of morality. Anything less than total abandonment of a morality is called discrimination. Hmm. I'm thinking of conversations I've had with friends who, who say the only reason crime exists is because of um, institutionalized oppression and the way to eliminate crime and bad things is to give money and funding to downtrodden communities. It's never uh, an issue of a personal moral failing, but it is a result of forces of society. Yeah, and I mean, you could say that to an extent. You could say it's the society's fault of destroying the moral institutions that restrain certain behaviors. <laughs> but maybe if you give them money, it'll fix it. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've seen how that works, unfortunately. 
that giving them money doesn't doesn't lift them out of their conditions. Giving them money institutionalizes their conditions. We we can look at how the the New Deal affected you know poverty in America. It institutionalized. You mean the New poverty. Deal from FDR's New Deal from the 1930s? Yeah, you know one one of the that was one of the big arguments. I mean, if you look at you know the incomes during that time and people coming at pulling themselves out of poverty, people were doing pretty well during that time. Really, it was these policies that institutionalize this type of failure. And then you get generational failure because you have parents, fathers who don't pass on these values. You have mothers who can have kids and raise their kids in total poverty, and they're subsidized by the government. They don't have to maintain family structures, right? You can, you can have systems of that, that should result in failure propped up by government financing. And what happens is, is you have kids brought up in, in systems like that, and they're never taught what success looks like. Well, I'm thinking of a, a, a bill I heard is being proposed in California about um, providing basically universal basic income to a uh, small number of like uh, low-income people of color. And like when I heard that bill, to me, that's just, that's slavery. When you make these people completely dependent upon the state for everything. That's a slave. You know, there was a, there was an old communist uh, analogy for this, and I don't, I don't think it was a true story. I think it was an analogy. But you know, this is this was a popular story in the Soviet Union. They said one day uh, it's Joseph Stalin was walking around with some you know some of his cadres, and they said uh, you know Mr. Stalin you know supreme leader or whatever they call him. You know, how do we control people? How do you how do you institutionalize control? He says, watch this. And he reaches down, he picks up a chicken, and he tears out all of its feathers. And he puts it back down, and he hands it a handful of grain. And he says, now this creature will rely on me for all of its needs. You can destroy people's ability of independence. You can destroy the institutions that allow people to have independent life. You can destroy the values that let people go out and build their own wealth and create their own wealth and, you know, fail sometimes, yes, but also be able to rise from failure, right? You can destroy that. And when you destroy it, what you have is a person who cannot survive without the help of the government. Mm -hmm. And that is what these policies typically do. You know, I'm reminded of, um, it was a fan of uh, China and Censor that I was speaking to one time. And um, I won't say which country, but he was in a European country. He recently had a newborn baby, but he was out of a job. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry to hear about that. And he's like, oh, the government is basically providing everything. And I was like, oh, okay, so the, I see why people defend, like, this kind of socialist system. Like, that's great that uh, a family like that can be supported. But then he said, well, the problem is so many people his age uh, don't want to work because the government provides just enough and like once they start to work, suddenly like the taxes shoot up and then they have to work really hard to eat, to have less than they do right then. And so he was saying that this is a big problem. And it's true in the U.S., especially where if you have if you have tax brackets, right, where you go, we go beyond a certain income, you get hit with extra taxes. It's actually better for you to be right below certain thresholds. You're going to be better off typically. Yeah, I know plenty of people like that. I, I was, you know, starting a YouTube show. You don't make a lot of money. I knew plenty of people living in poverty, below poverty, and yeah, it was like as soon as they moved up to that tax bracket, suddenly they were poorer than they were if they had made less money. Yeah, and and what you have with this then is not just the institutionalizing of failure, right? Because it's better to just be in that state, right? You, the government's taking care of you, and there's no incentive to rise out of it. 
it's very difficult to rise out of it, first off. Your conditions may be worse if you rise out of it, depending on how deep these policies go, like you just mentioned. And th- what, what ends up happening is, is that they can even make it so that success is not desired, that even the motivation to want to go out and work and basically support the entire socialist state and big government policies is not something you'd actually want to do, right? The, the motivation for success is then eliminated. And this is when you get into deeper states of communism, deeper states of socialism, where the government says, well, I'm going to make you work. If you go into the old Owenites, the early socialists, even in one of the competing schools of Marx, actually, and you still have these folks, um, they said that, you know, if you, you know, you're going to, the government's going to determine all your life, essentially. And if you choose not to work, you're going to be compassionately killed, essentially, you know. Well, I think we're pretty far away from that in the U.S. It's it's not too far away, though. In China, that's how it's done. You know, the undesirables of the state are eliminated. You know, that is China. Um, so I guess the issue is, you know, communism has a pretty obvious history of failure. The Soviet Union collapsed. I, I don't think anyone outside of China, for the most part, thinks the Chinese Communist Party system is good. So despite this history of failure, why does uh, this communist socialist ideology still persevere? I'd say the ideology endures for a few reasons. One, one, a few reasons. One of which is that the people who really know what they're doing, and, and I, I would put the people who know what they're really doing in like the 1% or less of actual communists. It's always this 1%. Yeah. <laughs> these are the people who I think know how these things actually work who really know the internal game, and they can mislead people. They can lie to people, and they can lead them along with this glorious vision of the future. They can come off as compassionate and come off as well-meaning. They can make it appear that these ideologies are actually something to be desirable, even though they themselves are looking for something that is malignant, right? I'd say the other one is just lack of education. A lot Mm -hmm. of people just frankly, don't even know what socialism is or what communism is. And they don't even, they don't understand economics. They don't understand history. They don't really understand any of the stuff. They've never read about the actual policies of what the Nazis did and how that relates to socialism. They, they don't even know this history. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're led along, along by surface narratives and know none of this history. They know none of the way these systems function. And they're led along purely by just surface talking points and surface narratives and race narratives or conflict narratives, agitation propaganda, as they would call it, right? Mm-hmm. Meant to drive people against each other and make people feel like they're campaigning for something righteous. I'd say a lot of them are just well-meaning people who've been misled. It really twists the innate goodness in people, something that is coming from a moral position. It, it does. And, and, and I think it's very hard for people to see through it, and especially when they're told that the other side is something you shouldn't even listen to. And then I'd say the other side of it is just the, it's the actual institutionalizing of socialist policies. Because as it rolls forward, right, it becomes more difficult to engage in the type of society that we used to have. Because government policy, red tape, regulations, and so on become more difficult to navigate. It becomes harder to buy a house. It becomes harder to get out of debt. It becomes harder to get around the systems they've created that are meant to keep you enslaved, essentially. Through. I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. It, it becomes more difficult to navigate. And so you're more incentivized to basically just 
give up and say, let the government give me some money because, you know, that's the easier road. And the the lack of incentive to actually deal with all that hardship and all that trouble to try to create your own wealth and create your own business or create your own life. You know, the incentive is destroyed. And so I'd say it's these three things combined. Well, so then this ties to the sort of the main topic we were discussing at the beginning is how that there's this global battle between freedom and socialism. So how how is that being played out? Well, I'd say as things currently stand, you'd be hard set to find a country that has been influenced in some ways by socialist ideas. And this isn't just government, right? If you get into like the older views on socialism, you, you had like the Frankfurt School promoting cultural Marxism, which it was a thing. You can read their books, Marcuse and all those guys. Um, you can get into the ideas of, for example, the Fabian societies and the in infiltration of the institutions. You can go into the the syndicalists and their use of the unions system, the unions. You can get into the Owenites and their use of this whole collective, you know, farm commune type culture, which has a big influence on a lot of the grassroots hippie type guys in this country. You can get into the Democratic Socialists of America and their use of the grassroots. You can get into international communist systems that have carried out different forms of subversion, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department currently, uh, or their programs, for example, for political warfare to infiltrate our political systems and influence them, whether it's the Soviet-era um, programs for ideological subversion meant to infiltrate and whittle away at our institutions from within. And not just the U.S., but every free country, whether it was the global communist revolution promoted by the Soviet Union or the China model being promoted by the Chinese Communist Party right now. The, the infiltration of these ideas is taking place through just about every part of our society. Every institution has a part of it. Every cultural element has a part of it, whether it's, you know, the red, red Hollywood type guys, the Hollywood blacklist guys, or the CCP's influence over Hollywood right now. Uh, whether it's even going back further to just the promotion of these types of values that has you know, been happening for a long time. These things have been infiltrating society for a very long time. Um, and I think right now where we're at is this battle has reached its peak, basically, where people are feeling the pressure from every direction from it, and they don't know why they're feeling this pressure. And they're, they're realizing that the future that they thought they could have, where they could you know, go to school and buy a house and have a normal job and raise a family is becoming, so, it seems like something that you cannot achieve and they don't know what the remedy to that is. So I want to touch on freedom versus socialism. Now, I've heard this argument that uh, actually, you know, in the society we live in, people aren't free because, you know, when, when you don't have access to healthcare, when you're sick all the time, or when you have to work a, a low-wage job, like you're not really free. And so therefore the best way to sort of bring freedom to everyone is to have policies in place that have universal healthcare, that have minimum wages. Uh, you know, so doesn't that mean that these policies actually bring people more freedom? I'd say typically the policies bring people less freedom. And, and I mean, it sounds great. Yeah, I'm all for people having access to healthcare and so on. The problem is that government intervention policies are what causes a lot of these problems in the first place. Why is medicine so, so costly in the United States? Government intervention. 
you know, my dad just went to Mexico actually for a vacation. He he went to one of the pharmacies there, and he's he like he needs like heart medicine, you know, for this high blood blood pressure. It's like over the counter, like dirt cheap there. You can buy it super cheap. It's the same medicine. You buy the same thing here. It's the costs are through the roof. It's because of government intervention. Why is it that that school is like a debt trap these days? It's because government intervention. It's federal loans. In other words, the schools don't have an incentive to making it affordable because they don't need to make it affordable. They don't need to make incentive for people to pay off their debts because they don't need them to pay off their debts. They don't need people to have jobs that can lead to success within the normal society because they don't care whether they can pay off their debts or not. It's federal loans. The government intervention, government intervention is what allows it. Going back to even the financial systems, right? The banks, this was one of the big arguments against the Federal Reserve, is that normally if banks give out bad loans, the banks fail. They default. They go under. Bad practices lead to failure. The Federal Reserve made it so that that failure does not happen. And so what you have is institutionalized failure, where banks can give out bad loans nonstop. And if they fail, if they go under, technically they're bailed out by the system. The system saves them. That is done through inflation, which comes back on you and I, which comes out of our savings, right? The, the inflation, what doubles once every 10 years, meaning you can have 20000 in the bank. In 10 years, that 20000 is still going to be 20000 but the, but the actual practical value has halved, cut, been cut in half. It's government interventionist policies that are creating a lot of the problems we feel, and we're told that the solution to it is more government interventionist policies. So what's the right amount of government interventionist policies? Uh, this has been the discussion in the world through most of history, I'd say, you know? Um, and, and I think this, you know, keep in mind, you know, socialism, you could argue, has always existed in some ways. You could argue that any tyrannical government had socialist elements to it, right? Even during the time of the French Revolution, where they had the, you know, the, the reign of terror and Robespierre and these guys, you know, the, the whole idea they were promoting is very similar to what we have now. In fact, modern communism came out of that, right? Francois Noel Gracchus Babouf and his conspiracy of equals leading up to... Uh, League of Outlaws, League of the Just, up to the Communist League, and so on, right? Um, even at that time, they were saying, hey, this is just like the reign of Tiberius in ancient Rome. <laughs> they were they were pointing to older tyrants. The reign of terror was doing that, like Robespierre was doing that in the French Revolution. Yeah. The, the types of restrictions on individual freedom, the government's ability to interfere in the basic ways of life, right, has always existed typically during the fall of civilization. Typically, when civilization is on the decline, you always have policies like this. The problem you have with communism, and, it, and this is for people who are more deep into the readings of Marx himself, a lot of people think he's, he did it intentionally, that he created a system that manufactures the downfalls of society, that, man, that creates the systems of what you have when a society is falling, is collapsing. And if you understand the whole idea he was going on of the five stages of civilization and the very idea that communism needs to emerge from the collapse of existing institutions. Yeah, you could say that that was part of the idea that socialism was by design meant to fail. It was by design meant to create the conditions of a failing society, the kind of society you have whenever a government or a system is going to collapse. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, as the government gets more and more power, that obviously means individuals have less and less freedom to control their own lives. And that is typically what has happened at the end of a civilization. Any of China's dynasties, if you look at the Roman Empire, 
Yeah, almost always, yeah. Almost always. Mm. Mm. So where do we go from here? <laughs> well, I guess the obvious question is then, considering the endurance of communist ideology, how do we fight it today? You know, I think this is one of the biggest concerns a lot of people have is they feel that at this point there's nothing that can possibly be done. And even opposing it these days will get you relentlessly attacked. And even, in fact, the, the whole idea of fighting it plays into their whole idea of struggle of opposites. They kind of want that social struggle. You know, they want people fighting on the streets. They want people struggling against each other and fighting each other. In fact, the whole idea of the Hegelian dialectic was the conflict of opposites, the struggle of opposites. They believe this led to the social evolution process that I mentioned earlier. So Proud Boys versus Antifa is Hegelian dialectic. It literally is. It literally is. This is like yeah, it is like the Matrix. And so, you know, how do you, the question a lot of people who are in on this stuff, you know, I've had discussions like this. How do you deal with it without engaging in the dialectic? And the only thing I can think of is keep your faith. Because what it, what it, what it really at its heart seeks to destroy is faith, morals, belief, family institutions. Uh, it really, the main target of these things is a person's faith and belief and a person's uh, internal moral systems, whether that's created by your belief in God or whatever you believe in. Don't lose that. Uh, and, and at the same time, don't let people, don't, don't even engage in the surface conflicts, point to the, rooting, the rooted ideologies. I think that if you can have logical, real discussions with people and explain this stuff to them, that is how you do away with these systems. Do not engage on the surface arguments. The surface arguments are the things meant to create that type of conflict. Meant to antagonize people, make yeah. everyone hate each other. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say don't even get involved on the surface arguments. You know, go for the heart. Go, go for the root, uh, which, which is. is the stuff we're talking about today, I think. So the way to do this is by going on Twitter. Yeah, go on, go on Twitter and just write Twitter rant threads. Yeah, yeah there you go. Like <laughs> one out of 623. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, is another way to combat it maybe to build things? Like if the point of communism ultimately is to destroy is building things like a way to combat that I, I would say yes actually that's a good point actually you know building things and actually challenging challenging their beliefs through I think positive principles if you if you can not engage in the conflicts that they try to create maintain your values and you know keep to your values and yes I think build your own business build your own life and try to find a way to even spread that wealth so to speak through through creating wealth through helping people succeed right not not institutionalizing failure but by helping them succeed that is the opposite of what they're trying to do so the best way to help people is instead of the government giving everyone money maybe empowering people to get jobs and start businesses i feel like there was something some some saying about fish and fishing you should give Give a man a fish every day. Uh, and then he's and, all set? And then he's all set. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, as long as you give him a fish every day for the rest of his life, he'll be fine. Yeah, now, of course, go. there's also going to be fish inflation. So eventually, you know, <laughs> you're not going to feel satisfied with the amount of fish that you get. The fish gets smaller and smaller, even though it'll still be one fish. And also, who's going to do the fishing? Well, the government will take care of that for you, Chris. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> so I guess Jesus I wasn't a communist. <laughs> Well, I mean, everybody 
fishes, and but you only get one fish regardless of how much fish you caught. Eventually, it becomes like a goldfish. Uh. <laughs> oh boy! <sighs> All right. You know, I thought we were ending on a positive note, and then we started on this weird digression about fish. I think that basically sums up our podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 the point that uh, we all need to start building, as you say. We need to learn how to fish. Well, and, you know, the, the end of like, maybe more positive note. You know, one thing I've done in my research is I've not just looked at what's wrong with society and where society went wrong. I've actually done a lot of research on what created successful societies. Hmm. And you can go into history and you can look at what constituted tyrants versus what constituted say, you know, what were called sage kings. Hmm. And you had sage kings through many cultures, ancient China, King Rolf Cracky of you know, the Nordic countries. Emperor Norton the First. Emperor Norton the First. First Emperor of America. <laughs> Protector of Mexico. Yeah. You had Book them up. you had sage kings, right? And and the, the, this is the difference I found because I've been looking into it. And you go, I mean, I'm really doing a lot of studies on how this was defined in ancient China. Really, if you get into like military texts, uh, if you get into the uh, six secret teachings of uh, Tai Kung, fantastic book about leadership and military strategy. You can get to the teachings of the eight Taoist immortals and their lessons for kings. Uh, you can get into a lot of more you know older books in the West on again principles of leadership. The difference between a tyrant and a king, uh, a sage king, was this. A tyrant looked to gather all power to themselves, and they did not trust those around them because people becoming more successful around them was seen as a threat to their power. They would tear them down if they saw people rising up. They wanted people to be on their knees and to serve them. A sage king was the opposite. A sage king uplifted the people around them. A sage king embraced the strength of the people around them and sought to strengthen even further the people around them. That's a difference between, again, tearing people down for your own gain, a tyrant, versus a sage king to uplift people, to help people become more successful, to want them to succeed, and to support them in doing so. That is the difference. Well, I think a big part of this requires, and you mentioned this earlier, education. Where can people watching learn more about how to become a sage king? How to? <laughs> you laugh, but that is that is that's what everyone needs to do. Somebody they needs to, to write a book on becoming energy. a sage it king. Means, it's, it's the opposite of communism. You need a new campaign instead of Chris Chapel for supreme leader. It'll be Chris Chapel for sage king. <laughs> well, no, I've been very open that I would be a tyrant. <laughs> uh, Chris has made his choice. Yes, <laughs> I've made my choice. Make yours. Uh, but no, like, where can people learn more about the the roots of communism? Because as you say, like, not to get stuck on the surface level arguments, but to really understand what's happening and this, this how, another way forward. You know, I've, I've, I've had that conflict myself. So but the way I've done it is I've gone back and I've read literally probably hundreds of books tracing back history. I step by step tracing it back to its origins. I, I like to study history not by reading people's interpretations of it, but by tracing things back to their origin, reading all the books I can find around that time to understand the, the worldview and type of person at that time, and then tracing it forward as it developed and understanding the arguments for and against it as it developed. I don't think there's a single book that has this in one place. Currently, though, Back on Crossroads, my show. Uh -huh. I am putting together a seven-part series on the history of communism that will touch on this, and I'm planning on doing other series like it that will touch on this. And um, if you want to learn, you know, I'd say traditional morality, a lot of it taught this. Whether you're a Taoist, I'm a personal fan of Taoism, 
whether you're Christian, the Bible actually has a lot of good principles on this. Whatever, whatever your faith is, a lot of traditional faiths did talk about this internal refinement that would lead to a successful way of moral life. or spiritual discipline and cultivation. Yes. Well, I think what I need to ask you to do is create a book list. <laughs> we'll start a book of the month. Oh God! Club. So actually, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in the process. Months. I'm in the process of doing it. Actually, a lot of a lot of my audience too on Crossroads they've been asking for, it, and I told them mm -hmm. I'd do it. I, I'm in the process of moving, so all my books are in boxes right now. But okay. I am planning on doing this. Maybe we could do some some co-op. I, I think there's some kind of uh, book. Hey, if PewDiePie can do uh, book reviews. So can we. There we go. It's going to be a little different, I think. He he was really into uh, the Stoics, actually. He did a lot of I, I love the Stoics, actually, personally. Hey, maybe you and PewDiePie. And there we go, man. Just waiting to happen. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uniting the forces to, to bring back Stoicism. Crossovers with Crossroad. Uh, stoicism is canceled. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. probably. Ah, uh, yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us, Josh. Uh, I'll have a link to your channel below. Definitely check it out. It's a fantastic source of knowledge and information, and I'm really looking forward to that uh, book club. Need to make it happen. Yeah. Definitely. Hey, real, real pleasure. Thanks again. Yeah. Watch out, Oprah. Watch out. <laughs> uh, thanks for watching. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chung. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time.